Carrying huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain so close. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. During my competitive days and now, health is a real priority for me. That's why for the last two years, I've been drinking AG1 every day. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel energized and focused to take on the day. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also simple. With AG1, I know I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support with vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from whole foods. I like to think of it as nutritional insurance. I know I'm covering my nutritional basis right from the start of the day. The thought of taking multiple supplements, mixing them and matching pills and powders, etc. sounds exhausting and such a mission. But just one daily scoop of AG1 covers my nutrient gaps and supports my mental and physical health without a lot of hassle. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1 and that's why I've partnered with it. Plus, I started taking AG1 long before this partnership even came about. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 plus K2. Also, five free AG1 travel packs, which are awesome. These are great. I take them on the road. With your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com forward slash moving the needle. That's drinkag1.com forward slash moving the needle to check it out. The links will be in the show notes as well. We will get to the episode, I promise, but this is exciting news I have to share it with you. The podcast is going visual. We are on YouTube. So if you enjoy watching podcasts, make sure you go to Moving the Needle Podcast on YouTube. So search it on your YouTube. You'll find it. Hit that subscribe button and then watch some of the clips if you don't mind. Maybe leave some comment. Let's get some engagement because the more we get the YouTube out there, the more I can get awesome guests. And that's probably the biggest thank you you can do for me right now. Let's build up that YouTube. So share it with some friends. Check those clips. Leave us some comments. And I appreciate that, man. Let's get to the episode. Welcome back. Another episode of Moving the Needle Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Nettling, but we, uh, we know you're not here for me. And I've got a pioneer in the mountain bike world, free ride. Well, he was racing first, then it was sort of free ride, then he invented his career. Super iconic feature, I think, in the mountain bike industry. Mr. Aaron Chase. Dude, welcome to the show, number one. And it's Thank been you. far too long, number two. I know, it totally has been. Good to see you. Yeah, I'm, uh, I keep saying it's a sort of a byproduct of the podcast is to sort of reconnect with uh, faces I would have seen at the race circuit or at slope style events like Crankworks or whatever it be. And I guess it is a good excuse for us to get on a call and maybe catch up as well as break down what mountain bike sort of meant for you. For sure. The old good old days, because that was so much fun racing and everything else. Uh, I had a blast doing it. Um, but man, racing's tough. Racing is tough. But you started in the racing side. I mean, that's you'd already transitioned when we crossed paths, like at those Lenowski jams and all those things on the East Coast. I mean, I don't know when we would have crossed paths for the first time, but that's kind of what I would guess it would have been. Yeah, I think so too. So yeah, Lenowski would have his jam at his house. So it was it was all the trucks from the circuit would pull into his road and all just like fill up his whole street. 
and everybody would come down to the down through the woods and ride the jumps and it was a modest set of jumps like real nice and fun wood chip piles and stuff like that and tons of people were having it so it was just I think it was a fun stop in between some of the big races and uh yeah it was really cool riding with all these out-of-towners you know like dude there was so I mean there's so many guys from all over the place um and you know all of the all the factory teams would roll in I mean I remember uh um Katrina Miller had her own mechanic Matt Bottomley was there wrenching on her butt like it was just ridiculous support at the jumps (laughs) yeah but I mean you would know from starting in the racing scene and having a factory ride that you need sort of a breather in between the high intensity of the races and the pressure and that seemed to be such a thing, right? It was just low key and where the sort of, well, I guess th- that was kind of before free ride, free ride. There was free ride, but the street aspect of mountain biking was getting going as well and, and coming into dirt jumping and in the races. That's where we sort of got together for the first time. Yeah, I mean, racing for me was always um, a way to test myself and see how good I was against everybody else. And, um, and then, you know, that was what got me the support in the very beginning. Um, pretty fun little story is when I got on with Cannondale, it was this guy, Dave Cody, who is a graphics designer, came to my school because he graduated from my high school years before. And he came there for career day and he, and, you know, graphics designer, and, you know, me and my, uh, my biker buddies were all talking to him and, uh, we were like, Hey, that was, you know, you know, awesome bikes, awesome. Everything. We'll see you at uh, Mount snow this summer for the, for the national. And, uh, I, you know, and that was where we left it. And then I get to Mount snow for the national and walk into registration and freaking registration's totally full. So expert slalom's full. I leave, I leave registration. Like, God, I'm an idiot. Like talking to my buddy or whatever. And he's like, dude, just sign up for pro walk in there, sign up for pro. Like, see if that works. I signed up for pro. I qualified 10th uh, and beat Andrew Shandro and then just kept racing people. And then my, uh, my dude, David Cody sees, sees what I'm up to. And he's like, dude, we got this little team starting up next year. It's going to be the head shock team, which then the year after became the Sobe team. Um, and I got on board with those guys and they weren't even a gravity team so much as they were just like a, a traditional uh, cross country race team. Um, got on with those guys, got in with uh, the guys at Cannondale, started doing testing and everything else. And I was on board with those guys for 17 years from there on. Yeah, but you missed a few steps there because I did know about this story, but I hadn't heard it like from you. Is just so happened that you messed up entering an expert race that you were forced to race pro. Obviously yeah. you had to be good enough because you qualified 10. So clearly the skill was there, but if it hadn't been for that, you might not have got the support for a while. Well, th- no, not at all because my buddies were the spooky cycles guys, which you probably don't even know that name of that. Company. Anyway, th- these guys are out of upstate New York. So they're, you know, in my area and they're like hardcore power to the people. Like, they had BMX bottom brackets in their uh, in their dirt jump bike or whatever that called the metalhead, and it was a steel bike with gussets. It was just very different than Cannondale's, which were light. And, you know, the welds are all 
um, are all uh, sanded down to be nice and smooth. It's just in Canada it was so different, and this and in Spooky Cycles was so different. And when uh, Dave asked me to put my resume together, I you know this is just uh, all the races I've done. Like let me write it all down, and and then I sent it to the Spooky guys too, and I didn't get any response. They probably tossed it right in the trash. Um, which I even know those guys and everything else, but anyway, missed the, missed the boat there and had to take the Cannondale position. So, and it ended up working out. Thank God. I think, but, it I mean, out. how many times does that happen to you? And yeah. How many times what? does that happen in a career where it's like not forced to enter pro, but like something happens and it changes the course for everything. And you're like, wow, if that path didn't go that way that way where would i have gone you know well i mean yes always looking back at it, it's super interesting because you you could be so bummed and then luckily your buddy said just enter pro like what's the big deal you want to race so do you can you remember being this grom and entering pro like was there nerves or he's just you know sort of ignorance is bliss not knowing anything and just wanting to ride your bike no i knew i knew it was, like it was a big deal and, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, because this wasn't my first slalom race. There was a slalom series around here um, that was heavily supported by Mobile Speed Pass, which is like the toll booth company. And we were, I was winning money every weekend, and that was my summer job was was racing bikes. So I was the I was the fast guy around here. Anyway, me and Kyle Ebbett were battling like every every weekend. It was just such a such a good time. Um, and I was fast and I felt fast and, uh, I felt like if I needed to turn it up even more, I could. So it was just like, you know, when you're racing and you're feeling fast, um, yeah, slide into pro let's do it. But the reality sets in when you're sitting in line and yeah. this is like a slalom thing, but, but the line and slalom is the first race of the day. It's just trying to get to that starting gate because everybody just funnels in all those guys are savages. There's like Miles Rockwell and Cullinan and Missy Jovi was just right there. Like just all the, just all the most iconic people in line racing to get to the start, you know, because it's not a nice clean line. It's like everyone's just funneling in. And I remember standing there, like I was standing still or going backwards in a river, you know, it's just like everybody else is getting their runs in and I'm just still like not aggressive enough to, squeeze my way to the start line <laughs> i remember my first pro race at big bear um i was sort of in front of vores and behind someone else just i mean i i was freaking out inside i was freaking out you know you qualify and you don't expect to be anywhere so you i qualify whatever 20th or 25th whatever it is in the downhill and then you look around who you're with you know and it's just it's quite it's kind of a pinch me moment i guess and then as you get confidence you obviously qualify even better and then you got to start believing that you can beat these guys come final um, but i i yeah that first first pro race is something else man i guess there is only one first pro race isn't there oh yeah yeah and this one was in front of my hometown in you know right there in mount snow vermont um <clears throat> And, uh, I, I just had so much support and I had nothing to lose. So I was, and I was just riding on rails anyway. So that's cool. Yeah. Lose. That you just felt yeah. you had nothing to lose. Like, well, I'm not meant to be yeah. in pro anyway. So if I got first round, who cares? Uh, yeah, I didn't, 
I, I just remember, you know, being like, well, it's time to, it's time to show them what I got. And it's time to, it's time to do, uh, it's time to perform. Like it's time to come out of the gate strong and everything else. And, you know, take a risk from jumping right out of the gate fast to, you know, to cranking all the way down through that last turn and making sure you get the most out of the differential so that your next run's a little easier. That's cool, man. And that's so you, as you said, you yeah. met this guy at school, then you bump into him here in your pro race and it led to your first pro contract, which would later be, you said, Cannondale Sobe, which is technically outside industry sponsorship back then. You know, some of these teams had the big, that's a drink sponsor, right? Sobe was like a big drink Yeah, it's sponsor. not even around anymore. No, it's Pepsi not, bought right? him and I think, I think dissolved the company. I, uh, but anyway, Sobe back in the day had 50 flavors like big glass bottles i don't know they had yeah, all the 7-elevens and gas stations right they were yeah. in all that stuff yeah with like i remember a carrot elixir and pina colada and there's all these like flavors that people don't even drink anymore but they were pretty popular then like green tea something and you know it's just all this stuff that people don't even really drink anymore but anyway Sobe came into the sport in a big, big way. Um, and then they were bought out by Pepsi and then the mood changed and then they were off the program and then that got dissolved. But while they were there, the people that were in it were, were full gas in sponsoring people. They even, they sponsored Pastrana. They ran a running race down the slalom course called like the Sobe slammer. You like run, halfway down the slalom course, slam Sobe, and then run the rest of the way. And I remember a guy broke his leg and <laughs> just running the, the race course uh, in front of the fans as like a halftime show in the slalom or something like that. But anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent, but Sobe did a lot for, um, for me in the very early days by fueling that team and uh, paying for, we had two mechanics, and these two mechanics were driving to all the races. I would hop in the car and bum rides and we would have a trainer set up in the back of the, of the truck. So you could like sneak into the back and like just spin for an hour and then get all sweaty and then, you know, get back whatever in the in shotgun and just kind of ride the rest of the way. And it was, um, it was pretty sick little team. Um, it was just mostly women's, the biggest people on the team were the women's cross country. And was so it I was kind of redheaded. Yeah, I was kind of on the. Yeah, exactly. I was the redheaded stepchild to Lopes and Cedric on the Volvo team. So they'd True. be like, "Yep, Lopes yeah, got yeah. a new bike. You, you, you get a new bike, but now it's got a Sobe paint job." And same with the downhill bikes and everything else. I, I got all the bikes. That you get the same stuff as that, the factory. Yeah. The Lopes and Gracia era with Volvo Canada was one of the biggest teams to date, you know, like how professionally it was run, the money that was in there. I've seen like, um, team workbooks, like it was proper, proper stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um, <clears throat> Absolutely. They would come up with something new all the time and you were constantly testing it. So it was like the R&D to your race career was, you know, it was like half and half because I would ride, I rode that double rear shock Gemini at the time it was called. And um, I rode that thing 
and races and broke different things in the races all season had like the most frustrating season on that bike. Um, but, uh, I don't know, learned a lot or a lot of what not to do, I guess, basically. But, but Canada was never a company that shied away from taking risks. And, 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 uh, I mean, that showed with, they had quad piston brakes. They put the bearings outside of the bottom bracket shell for a for, so it's wider. They did, um, you know, they made the bikes look good by, by polishing the welds. That's a controversial kind of thing too. And then the lefty fork, like Jesus. When I got when I I, I first went down to Connecticut to do R and D on the Lefty Fork, and they were like, "We got a special thing for you to check out. Can't wait for you to get here." You know, and I'm like, "Great!" So, and while I'm down there and I'm looking at this fork, I was like, "You guys, the second one of these breaks, no one's ever gonna buy one again." And uh, I don't know that I, I, they're not the best fork. It's not a fork that everybody is desiring, but also never really saw one of them break. They were pretty strong, so they worked out. But w w what was your first thought? Like you, you told them this is not a good idea, but yes, did, if they said we've got something new for you and you didn't know what yeah. it was and you walk in and then you see yeah. it's half a fork, yes. well, what, are you, what is going through your mind? I didn't think it was a good idea at all. I mean, <laughs> no, I, I, I thought... It no, shit. I thought it was ugly. I thought it was ugly. And, and then I and then I was just like the second one of these breaks. No one's ever going to buy them. The other cool part is that the when I and you just kind of painted a picture, but you walk in and see the fork. I walked and saw the fork and I saw the prototype forks, which were bigger in dimension. They had like a downhill bazooka tube lefty fork too, like like. Oh, like that a Zizix, luckily never went a Zizix compared to like a rock shock. Like you're just like, whoa, the whole thing's like twice as big. Yeah. Yeah. That never came to market. Like a big bazooka lefty fork, which was pretty crazy too. It was like the size of the Cannondale tubes itself. You know, those were all oversized. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, it didn't seem like the best idea, but, um, but also it was, it ended up, it ended up working out like Cedric and Lopes raced on them. Um, and then I started shooting trick videos while riding this lefty fork. So I would do like a sprocket disaster and like a bar spin, but the top tube, or I mean the, the lefty fork had this big pad on it that if you X'd it up or like, you know, crossed it up or whatever, and it would it, like a bumper, but a big bumper for the top tube and uh and anyway i'd bar bang like rewind so it's like a half a bar spin and then it whacks into the frame and then comes right back into the same hand so you throw and catch with the same hand and then like pop off of it i couldn't do it in the air or anything like that but i could in like stalls and anyway i did a i also did a half bar spin to no hand lander because that also like had stoppers and it kind of worked but uh, i remember just taking that fork and kind of running with it like i ran front brakes and did nose pick stuff and and all these uh other weird tricks and i just took the fork and was like well this is what i'm riding so i gotta make it not only work but work for me you know so where where did it, all the street stuff come and and like that transition from being on a race team being on a factory team and i would assume it was more a slow burner of pissing them off 
doing parking lot jibs and breaking stuff and maybe them feeling like you're not focused on racing. Like, can you talk me through that period? Well, especially the team that I was on was really focused. So like I would try to bum a spot on the floor in the condo and I'd run out to race practice, come back in, grab something and grab some fireworks and leave. And everyone's like, shouldn't you chill and like put your feet up and rehydrate? Like, you know, we're at Mammoth or Big Bear or whatever. Like you got to relax in between all of this so you can like save your energy. And I'm like, well, I mean, I just got here. We're in California. Like all my friends are outside. (laughs) I'm out of here. So uh, for, for me, like I really worked on making racing uh, or treating racing as a job and really trying to be serious, but I never, I never um, fully committed to being like the the most serious racer. Um, I really tried, but, uh, but when push came to shove, I was outside riding with my buddies or riding some new drainage ditch or the dirt jumps down the road or I was just riding my bike and, and hanging with my friends always called me over, like, take that time off, rest your body so that tomorrow you can be a better racer. But that's just tough for you. So it just wasn't what your personality was. Like the more you try no. to be serious, the more you were just kept fighting it internally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then, and then also being serious and training my motor, trying to get my motor up and running, um, you know, more powerful, <clears throat> like my legs and lungs and, uh, putting more miles down on a road bike and everything else. Um, I did it and, and it worked and it, and it, you know, I felt benefits from it and everything else, but it just, I couldn't maintain that level of, seriousness or professionalism because I felt that the race um the field was so freaking high level that it was like everything I did to be better just kind of kept me up with the peloton never like on the front like I'd get out there and and you know do all right at slums and stuff like that and then I'd I'd come down through the finish line of a of a, of a downhill race, like feeling really good. And it would be in like twenties or thirties. And I'm just like, Phew. like the people that the guys that consistently can land on the podium are just uh, uh, untouchable in my opinion. And, and it's attractive to win races and you in, in, in race and everything else. But when your other teammates are like Cedric and, and Lopes and you're like, fuck, I'm never going to fucking be like, I'm never going to beat these guys. These guys are insane. Um, you know, on so many levels, but the one thing that I do is, you know, I jump off the steps and over the, this and down the hill and off the roof or do a trick on the slalom course or something like that. And I was getting more praise or more recognition for shooting videos. So I, the very first video I shot for was Matt Collins video. It was like masters of reality. I think it was called. And that was Matt Collins was the one that shot with Vorties all the time. Yes. They lived in Santa Barbara. I feel like he was from Santa Barbara or maybe that's where I met him. Yeah. Yeah. And he's still around he still shoots stuff for, for Voorhees and stuff like that. Um, and then I got on board real quick with Don Hampton from DH productions and shot in central park in, in New York city. And then, went to Lars's dirt jumps and just 
you know, started a big relationship with, uh, with Don Hampton. He taught me how to edit and then I produced, you know, countless videos with him and then I even did a couple of my own killing time counterparts and bang bang so true yes that was man those fun, you're yeah. saying those were produced by you as well yeah like you yeah. put together what the budget and this filming the schedule and like wrapped it up true killing time, well the, yeah. the first one yeah killing time the first one was just all my footage boom like i'm going to edit it the way i want i'm going to put all the songs in that i want and video action sports did the worldwide distribution and we had them, um, uh, everything was out on DVD. And that was the time too, when you could make an honest um, decision of doing VHS and DVD or just straight DVD, like you had an option. <laughs> so yeah. I just always went straight, straight DVD. So I never, unfortunately, I never had a VHS. I would have been cool, but it was a whole nother uh, level of, um, I guess to print all those costs a little bit more if you're going to go both ways. I don't remember exactly how it all went, but DVDs were fun. You made about $2 a video, um, $2 for a $20 video, but um, it worked out and it was cool to get sponsorship for. I got sponsorship for the second and the third video. Um, the counterparts was one where I could hit up claw and get like a big melt tape of all his best shit. Like, give me that. Here's my tape of all my best shit for his video run for your life. And he like, so all my savage moments, like I, I would, we just trip foot trade footage. Like I had crazy stuff. And you say you were editing like, it yourself. You physically, we're editing it back thing as well. Oh yeah. 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 Don Hampton helped me because we did the first two, um, we did the first two chain reactions. And then for the third one, I slid in the editor seat and edited my section and a couple other guys sections. Oh wow. And, um, yeah, I literally and didn't even just kind of to get me started. That's a lot of work, man. Like people don't see yeah. it. They just think you're, in these movies, but they didn't see the groundwork behind the scenes. Yeah. And producing those three DVDs, like soup to nuts is a lot of work. And, uh, counterparts was my favorite one because that was the one where I actually intentionally tried and I intentionally won, you know, like I was like killing time was, it is what it is. And it came out and it was great. Awesome video. Everybody liked it. And then, counterparts i really tried and it really worked out and then bang bang i really tried but i crashed broke my back and salvaged the video and my filmer stayed out in europe for that Kashki series with cam mccall and followed him around and and it kind of was like a split story between me and cam mccall um it was supposed to be the name of the video is supposed to be This is Freeride, and it was going to be a party video through Europe doing all the cash key events and, uh, and making money and, and just having a blast. But I ended up crashing in practice on the first event and busting my back up. And that was the end of my uh, slope style career for sure. And that was the end of my video, This is Freeride. And then it turned into Bang Bang, which was kind of just like a 
polar opposite, like a split down the middle. Like here's, here's where the, here's what happens when two paths go two different ways, you know, one's the injury injury and one's, you know, going all the way to the finish line. How many years were there of doing the filming and slope style and these events until the injury and after leaving like, of racing? Like how many years are there before that, that big injury yet? Yeah, so the timeline is I graduated high school in 97 and I got on with Cannondale in 98 and I rode pro uh, from 98 to 2003 was my last year and 2004 was the first year and then I left uh, my team, my mechanic, kept Cannondale as a frame sponsor and then picked all of my other sponsors a la carte and then left racing in 03 for free ride in 04. So 04, I was done racing and uh, I was already in bed with Red Bull and Neural Disorder. So I was like, I'll, I'll do this and this will, this will be what I'll, what I'll do instead of, you know, instead of racing. And, and the crash again, what year was the cash guy where, where you broke your back? Yeah, that was 2007. So that's only three years of full-time. Yeah, three, four, four years, yeah. Slope style and, and doing, well, then, yeah, it was slope style, but it was quite, some of them were quite street orientated as well, which was really your forte. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, shit, that's quite crazy and early on for such yeah. a horrific crash that, like you say, it created these two paths that could have been this one and you were forced down another one. I didn't think it was that short of a space. Obviously, you had quite a few yeah. years as a pro and racer and and doing both, and people knew your name, which obviously helped. That's what it was. Yeah. That's what it was. It was I was I doing both longer. racing and and, and video parts for, and for all sorts. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So once two thousand, so in two thousand six, I won the I, or I won the. Um, in 05, I won the Red Bull bike battle. In 2006, I won the Red Bull district ride. And um, and that was the biggest contest at the time, the biggest prize purse, the most amount of people watching an event. There was like 40,000 people in town. Um, so that was my peak pinnacle um, of, of, of competition. Um, that those days of competing with those guys because there's probably like let's say a dozen guys that all went to these contests had to be one of the coolest eras ever because we're all friends we're all traveling we're all trying to get second behind darren bearclaw and darren bearclaw is always taking his some of his prize person bringing it to the bar after and it was just fun like it was just so fun, you know, Cam McCall and Zinc were like the Groms tagging along and, uh, yeah, Bearclaw, Randy Spangler and, um, just, f- just fucking all these super sick dudes, um, that, uh, that shaped the sport, um, and watching that go down, like watching Bearclaw three, that road gap at Crankworks for the first time. And we're just like, dude, 
he might he might be able to do it, but if he crashes, he's dead. You know, it was just like one of those high consequence. That thing was big. Moves, True, he, I was there. That was in 04, yeah. maybe. Yeah, that sounds about right. Something like that. Yeah, you forget how gnarly it was. Obviously, we all age on, and you age out of your role in the industry or competing. And 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 I'm not going to gloss over your injury because yours obviously. You know, you transitioned way earlier because of an injury. But Bear Claw, like you forget that he was an icon of freeride or what he pushed. You know, now you see him like, okay, you're judging now and you, you're a gnarly guy. You forget. Um, and it's good to talk about shit going back there that he was quite unstoppable at some of these comps. Oh, yeah. And Timo Pritzel, like the German, like he wasn't afraid to like gap shit or flip anything. And, he was he was one of the guys too that like he'd show up to an event and, and flip something uh, early on and uh, and just kind of open your eyes to what people are comfortable with you know with um, with tricks and risk and and then of course every year it just keeps going up and up and before you know it you're like sky's the limit I mean it really is. Um, but yeah, when I don't know where I'm going with that, but uh, it was a fun ride to watch guys like like Zinc or McCall kind of come up too, you know. Um, traveling with Jordy Lunn, he was he was out there at a lot of them. Like uh, Thomas Vanderham did slope style then, and, and Richie Schley, like Wade Simmons, like these guys are all doing it. They're yeah. all at the top, yeah. It was a rock star period of the sport as well. So was Bearclaw one of the first to sort of do the unwritten 10% of prize money needs to go on the bar tab kind of thing? Was he yeah, kind of the, yeah. the founder really of that? He really was. Which I'm into. I, think, I so. think it's cool. I think that brings everyone together, even though you're competing against each other. It does because, um, you know, there's going to be that guy like Darren that, um, that you know, it feels un, un, like it's not balanced, like Darren's always coming to it. But then every other guy that would go out and compete, I mean, dude, if you didn't win, I mean, you were, you'd win such a small prize, you know, you'd win such a small amount of money already anyway. And then if you got third, it was way less. I mean, traveling to Europe and leaving with 600 euros sounds great, but it costs 1200 euros just to get there. Like it's doesn't it doesn't really work out and you really, really realize that all these guys would do all of this for free regardless of sponsors and everything else, because it's not a money grab. It's, it's, it's a personal, um, it's a personal goal to push yourself and try to better yourself against all these other guys. It's definitely not a financial move where you're like, Hey, a couple more of these and I'll be set for life. Like that's not it at all. So, um, yeah. So I think it always left like a pure spot in my heart doing these competitions because it, everybody was really bros and, um, and then, you know, and then, and then you did your run and then everybody partied together at the end. So, you know, it was, uh, it was just really neat. I even felt like in racing, 
there's, you know, it's a little divided. Um, there's like an upper echelon, like serious racers. And then there's kind of like a, you know, the guys that aren't maybe the top 10 and behind or something like that. I don't know. I just always thought there was a split and a divide, but, and maybe because I was really part of the free ride club, like one of the center guys in the free ride club, I just felt like it was very inclusive, but that's just my position there. Yeah, I think that's kind of quite interesting. There's obviously more races, and I think there is sometimes a divide even now. You know, there's guys that can win races, and there's a lot more of them now and be on the podium, and maybe the guys that were super serious and not at the bar, and then you had a few guys that would win races and be at the bar. Um, oh, yeah. But you've got to you got to earn those guys respect to be in that clique, you know, and I, and, and I think in freeride there's less guys, and you've got everyone's not saying the top racers don't respect everyone else or someone that's not doing as well, but in free ride, like you're doing the same thing. You're the one doing a crazy, maybe nose tap 360 that someone else go, well, that's really impressive. I can't really do that. And then Timo's doing the flip over something where you're like, well, I'm not touching that trick. So I respect it. Does that make sense? It's, yeah. And you're all like, yeah, I mean, all races can relate to each other on pressure and getting down the track, but something is quite unique with a free ride freeride crew i would say and looking back at it i mean was there pressure to up your game and keep uh, raising the bar on the risk level um for sure uh in the competition side yes there's i mean there's pressure at every event because every event um tries to outdo the event before it in, in, and what I mean by that is, you know, what's special about this event? Well, it's bigger. Like that's, and I always felt like that. So we'd have, we'd show up and be, I like, I'd show up on a hardtail and be like, I can't jump half of this on a hardtail. I should have been on a full suspension bike with a full face helmet, but I did the last contest on a hardtail and, and won it. Like I, you just never knew what to expect. Um, and then also I didn't, I wasn't that, I didn't feel that great on Cannondale's suspension bikes because they were pretty linear in the way that they were great for pedaling and nice and supple. But when it comes to hitting the ramp and popping, it was, you know, they were like single pivots, kind of like that orange bike that you were on, like nice and simple but then when you're hitting jumps and steeper ramps like it really moved a lot and i don't know what who was your crew that you came over because i remember you know you're on the global team who is it who is your crew that you came to the states with well my crew was just myself luckily sven and Anka took me under their wing but i but i got yeah. to know the aussies um so like rainy yeah. sam hill atkinson and graves they took me under their wing for yeah. good or for worse, a um, bunch got, of misfits, right? I got there. my education of America and internationally by those guys. Um, and we <laughs> would all come to to those those jumps. So yeah, man. I, hear, I mean, when you speak of those years, those are my favorite years for sure. The first yeah. year or two and renting a cabin in Big Bear probably should be yeah. our training, but we were just dirt jumping and keeping bike fit, you know. And it was like simpler times, really, before it got so serious very much simpler times and i remember that crew of guys so it was like the cranked team or the global team or whatever all those fuckers were so fast like i remember the first time i saw 
Nick Hanna, he, you know, had no pads on and fucking scolded everybody in the downhill race with no pads. And you're, and, and this was at a time where like everyone was wearing like some serious battle gear, you know, and he didn't even have knee pads on. And then I remember Kavark scolding everybody and coming down at the end and just looking like he just, like he just, he almost had like the anger, like he just punched somebody in the face, but he had the breathing, like he just punched somebody in the face. Like he was a little like, <sighs> but he wasn't breathing heavy. Like he just pedaled down the mountain at elevation. Like I get to the bottom and I'm like coughing and like trying to catch my breath. And I'm like, my eyes are water and I'm like dying. And he crushed everybody at big bear one year by like six seconds or something. And I was like, looking for the tape hanging off of his bike. I'm like, how did he beat everybody? He's not even really breathing that hard. And anyway, and then Rennie, like he was a machine, dude. Um, dude, was it, you think, I mean, those, all those guys you just mentioned, but wasn't Rennie one of the most talented guys on a bike? Cause he could do the parking yeah. lot stuff and he could go win a downhill and it was brutal, yeah. you know, it wasn't always the, like, it wasn't always finesse, but no. um, dude, he was so talented. I mean, they all were. Yeah, he had a lot of strength and power, and um, yeah, he seemed like he was stronger than the bike. Like the bike will break, but Rennie will probably won't. <laughs> yeah. I did a big trip. I did a big trip to Australia with Rennie um, and a couple other guys, and we did a lot of like long distance, like towing in on a moto and hitting hitting moto ramps and. Cause we were in the middle of, I don't know, we were just trying to get footage in the middle of Australia, which is the Nullarbor, which means that there's nothing there. Um, so we went and rode these like opal mines and, uh, and everybody got a couple shots in neural disorder. And, um, but this trip was more than that. It was three weeks driving across country in a bus with Grant Allen. You know that? Remember that guy? I think so. Grant Allen rode for Kona and he was a dude, he was a short little not Grant dude. Fielder. No. Grant Allen. Grant Allen. Yeah. He's, he's an he's an Aussie. Ah, okay, okay. Uh him and Dave Watson and Rennie. Uh God, there was I feel like there's one other guy on that trip, but it was a red Red Bull trip. Um and we drove from Perth to Adelaide from like West Coast to East Coast. Um, in three weeks. So we were out in the middle of, you know, before you have cell phones and everything else. So you're just like out there like, dude. And there's so many things in the middle of Australia that are like dangerous. There, there was a Gila monster. One morning we woke up. Do you know what a Gila monster is? No, I like a... literally have <laughs> no idea, but I'm going to have to it's, research it. <laughs> it's a, it's a lizard that's you know pretty like a, an iguana or something but it's a little bit more robust like a little thicker and then its mouth is even bigger and it's black with a little yellow on it or purple i should say it's, it's dark with like some light spots on it and uh this guy will bite you and he's poisonous and he can kill you uh but if you find one in the morning before the sun really comes up and this guy warms up he's kind of paralyzed because he's cold all night so it was just stuff like that. And, and the, the photographer I was with is an Aussie dude, this guy, Matt something. Um, and he was just like 
oh, mate, look at this, like a Gila monster. Bud, we could pick him up. He can't even move. This guy could kill you and he can't even touch you right now. And I'm like holding it. Anyway, we had a blast. Uh, it's just there's so many things that you see on the road, especially when you're getting up early and you're getting out there in the in the bush early and then you're leaving late and, you know, and you're just exploring some of the coolest nooks on, on earth. And uh, yeah, so I, again, I don't know where I was going with that too. No, but, but yeah, keep, I'm, keep going wherever because like if you it's good to look back i mean i always say you know i've yeah. traveled the world yes i'm not always a tourist in a tourist place but i'm on someone else's dime often paying for it yes i'm working or we're doing a trip and you got to get the footage but in between you're getting to see all these crazy places you probably would never go as a tourist often right you wouldn't book the holiday never. to go see all the kilo monster or whatever like just wouldn't happen like no there's some of the shit you get up to and the memories you sort of form in this industry are hilarious. And it's neat too, like the quests that you go on because you're not necessarily going to Peru to go to Machu Picchu, you're, which, which everybody else goes on, which is like the plane to the bus, to the train, to the state park, to the, to the line, and then you're done with Machu Picchu. Like you just, you did the road that's most traveled in that area. When you're filming or on a bike trip, no one goes to any of these spots that you go to. And then you flow through all of these zones um, in a way that is beautifully exciting and pure and quiet, but fast pace. Um, and you get to soak up so much more and be a part of so much more doing it on two wheels than you would if you, you know, kind of showed up with the tourist guide and try to hit all the hot spots. Um, and then, and then the other side to it is the bike world itself is so freaking cool that if you're a biker and he's a biker and you're like, wait, you came from South Africa to ride here, dude, let me show you all this other stuff. Like, and then you're, you're in the group and then they're like, dude, come, come to a barbecue at our house after, you know, my buddy's got to see this or, or hear this, or you got to, you got to try this bike or you got to try my pump track in the backyard, whatever it is. Um, you know, it's very inclusive when you're a higher level rider or you're just somebody that comes from further away, like the bike world or the bike community is a good bunch of, bunch of people. It opens up doors. You're right. Obviously if you're a named rider or high level they're going to want to look after you. But I remember when I went to Iran, it wasn't because of my name. You know, it definitely was not because of that. These were just guys who wanted to show off their country or their friend was the guide for the bikers and he rode. Um, and it was amazing to get invited. Like you say, well, then come and come and have breakfast with us and they would make a local dish, which you're not having as a tourist. You're definitely not, and you're not having it from someone so kind to bring you to their home, you know. And I was thinking when you transitioned, you went on a lot of these adventure trips, and you just mentioned Peru. Like you've seen some pretty impressive places that I don't know, I wonder you might not have seen them if you just went down the competition route, you know. For sure. Um, doing that, doing the free ride thing was cool. So, in during the height of that, with uh, 
with free ride entertainment and neural disorder, it was like, all right, boys, you killed it last year and you just rode New York city. Where are we going this year? And it was like, Europe. And they're like, yeah, where like Amsterdam, where else? Uh, Barcelona, maybe Dusseldorf, Germany. All right, cool. That's, that's your trip. Take Ian Highlands and, and take Rob, the filmer, like take these guys and, you know, come back with the goods. And we would go bouncing around through countries in Europe. We'd go, yeah, South America, or I went to Turkey a couple times and rode over there in some just really insane spots that, um, yeah, that wouldn't have had a world-class race or a world-class event because of their lack of infrastructure, but makes you get out there and see the world and see how other people live and see how other people ride, you know, and show up and, um, and experience it. And it gives you a awesome perspective of your life when you go home. Um, and you know, your kitchen floor is dirty and you got a sink full of dishes and you're like, that's nothing because these guys live in a dirt floor and they don't have a sink with dishes. And you're like, so I guess I'm not doing too bad. Um, as I, I always like that 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 part of of travel is to um, is to see how other people lived. You know, I always thought that that was really freaking cool, especially when you go to a place like like Peru and and some of these people live at fourteen thousand feet. And um, I'm wa- I'm watching a kid walking around outside barefoot, um, high elevation with wind blisters on their cheeks and i'm like that little girl's the same age as my little girl and if she had a blister on her cheek she'd have aquaphor on her cheek we'd be all like making sure her cheeks are okay like it's just it's just so different and this is like you know a different world where people just people just grow up a little bit more rugged maybe i don't know what it is but seeing, you know, a mom with a huge cancerous tumor on her chest and she's got a kid and you're just like, Oh my God, like these are all people that, you know, aren't long for the world and they're all doing their best. And then we can go back home and, you know, have proper medical care and and insurance. And, and if you have a tumor somewhere, like that's getting checked out and getting removed and we'll, We'll have a biopsy on it and find out what's going on. And, you know, then you go to other places in the world and it's just, you just play whatever card you, you're dealt. Um, so anyway, it's eye opening and it makes you a better person to see more of that and the biking world, um, you know, gave me those opportunities. Um, and I'll definitely never, uh, never forget it because I, I, I remember, you know, being on, most of the trips I was always on, I would, you know, wake up in the morning and go, man, I can't believe I'm out here. Man, I can't believe I got this opportunity. I, I always felt grateful for being places and, you know, maybe not always, but I, I really, I really did smell the roses as much as I could. Hey there, mountain bikers and podcast enthusiasts. This is Andrew Nietling, and I'm here to talk to you about something that's going to change your game both on and off the trail. It's the Manscaped Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra the only trimmer your family jewels will ever need. We all want to shave time off our race runs, but how about shaving the parts that really matter? 
Picture this, you're shredding down the gnarliest trails, feeling the wind in your hair, and then it hits you. You need to tame the beast below the belt. That's where Manscaped comes in. With their cutting-edge technology and precision engineering, you can now groom with confidence, just like you conquer those downhill descents. But wait, there's more. Moving the Podcast is proudly brought to you by Manscaped, because we know what it takes to move the needle on and off the trails. The Lawnmower 5.0 is not just a trimmer. It's a performance masterpiece that guarantees smooth sailing through every twist and turn. And folks, this isn't just any trimmer. It's got skin-safe technology to prevent nicks and snags in those delicate areas. Seriously, I've been testing this bad boy and not one nick down there. It's waterproof, so you can take it from the trail to the shower without missing a beat. The constant motor RPM is like the turbo boost for your nether regions ensuring you'll be flying down those trails in record time. But that's not all. If you head over to manscaped.com and use code MOVINGTHENEEDLE, you'll get an exclusive 20% off and free shipping on your order. That's right, 20% off. So whether you're moving the needle in life or moving the needle on the trail, do it with style, precision, and the Manscaped Lawn Mower 5.0. Your jewels will thank you. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. And... and um, so fascinating like two wheels i mean were there places that you went where people didn't even know what a bicycle was because i feel as a mode of transport it's an accepted tool right whereas if you went somewhere else trying to show them another sport and i'm not going to say which one you know there's some popular sports like soccer is the most popular sport in the world right so yes you most kids might know what a soccer ball is, but maybe not. But a bicycle, they've often seen it or understood like it's a mode of transport. But it's quite fascinating when they see you ride it down things that it shouldn't be ridden down. That, that oh, to me is yeah. so funny. Oh, yeah. And I mean, South America is the best kind of example for that is like you'd go somewhere and you'd ride. I was just in Bolivia and riding down through uh, the streets of La Paz and you're like banging down these steep steps and every, and these are the stairs to people's homes that they, you know, full communities hike up and down just to get to their houses. And uh, if this was in the States, it would be very much frowned upon, but down there they're like, Whoa, these gringos are crazy. Like they don't, think it's a bad thing they just think that you're crazy and they watch it and they go well that was wild and then they keep going along on their way so i think that's kind of like the funnest part is well it's one of the funnier parts that people down there at least seem to have less possessiveness of the stairs that go to their house and more of uh let me see what these guys are doing and get out of their way and what the, what's what are those guys doing and then they're back on their way again so i think it's just fun uh to see different um different people react to different things in different areas it's just a different world and people are all you know inherently the same but very different in in, in the way that they take in their life uh i love south america man i've Spent yeah, a lot of time down there, and, and I really connect awesome. with that vibe. Yeah. And you think it's less materialistic as well? I mean, when you have less, there's less to worry about and maybe makes you worry about the right things and not things that actually don't matter in the long run, you know? We're so sort of 
brainwashed uh, in the Western world on, on certain aspects? Well, we have the most, I mean, the biggest opportunities, right? So what, of course you want to take them and an opportunity to um, do a podcast with you and get some new headphones with this speaker thing, you know? Um, I, I don't know. It's just, that's how it is around here and down there. It's a lot more simple and, uh, streamlined, but I do believe with, you know, more money becomes more whatever wants or needs or more problems or however that saying goes, but yeah, more, more uh, money, more problems. Wasn't it big? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I, I guess respect if it, it wasn't, maybe it was Tupac. I, I it's don't not know. me. It's not me. No, it's, <laughs> as a biker you're never going to have more money more problems <laughs> no you have more free stuff which creates more clutter and problems <laughs> yeah is your garage still full of tires or what? what what do you have the most of the most uh like seat just, posts or something like i don't know gear every year you i'm spoiled get new gear, gear so then yeah. i can donate yeah. it to the charity or my mates uh, yeah yeah gear yeah tires definitely. bikes well like you say that you hang on every year and then you just don't use it and then you get the new ones i don't know yeah mine would be tires tires yeah because you always access tires yeah you yeah i got i got a fair share because you get you know if you're spoiled you yeah. get a few few bikes a year and then those need tires and you think you're going to wear them out but because you have a few bikes you don't wear out all the tires and all the bikes <laughs> yeah and uh we, we just we just showing how spoiled we are i guess yeah i know but that's a currency too I, I mean dude i was with red bull for 19 years so i was able to like tip the the garbage man like a case of red bull here you go like you know i'd have a case of red bull in my truck if i was driving 100 miles down the road because who knows what i'm going to need for whatever and then i pull into the parking lot at at the ski resort and there's no parking and i'm like dude can you fit me in and plus i don't have any space for this i got a whole case of red bull yeah <laughs> do you take this you know and people are like what or take the whole thing that's like 50 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever red whatever and uh yeah I'll, I'll find you a spot like i don't know it was just such a currency that no, everybody no 100 percent yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you're right. You don't. You ain't getting super, super rich from this bike industry. You get a hell of a lot of free stuff if you're able to perform well on a bike. That's for sure, dude. You yeah. would have got away from some serious speeding fines in South Africa. You could that Red Bull energy drink down here. Trail building as well. Yeah. I can get us some trails built on 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 Red Bull. That stuff's some serious currency, dude. For real. All right. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> I still got a, I still got a connection. I'm not getting cases every month anymore, but not dude, after they listen point, to this, they're not. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 I'm sponsorless. I, no one holds uh, any weight over me anymore, which is good and bad, I guess. Um, <laughs> is any of it, but is some of it freeing? Yeah. Well, so Yes, it is, especially with Red Bull. Red Bull's a heavy helmet to ride around with, you know? Mm. Um, and uh, and I got a lot more used to it, but after I busted my back and everything else and I felt as though I didn't quite have 
my superpower of I can do anything on a bike or I can I can be faster than the guy next to me if I need to. If I need to turn it up, I can turn it up. Um, after I broke my back in 07, all that went out the window and I was more of a, of, of a superhero without their superpowers, but I still had the cape and the, the outfit and everything else and the muscles and I, I had everything, but I just did not have that edge that gave me more than everybody else or the next guy. Um, anyway, what was I saying for, uh, oh, with Red oh, well, Bull. Now and, not having sponsors, but, but on that point, oh, yeah. so, so this injury of yours, like you, I've read a bunch about it and looked at some interviews and I guess we were at different paths and I was chasing the racing dream still and we weren't always crossing paths uh, for lack of a better mm -hmm. term. So I don't think I understood the effect it had on you and, and maybe having to reinvent yourself. And like you said, feel like you didn't have a superpower. What, what was it like dealing with that injury and understanding what you could do on a bike and couldn't, and thus having to make a career. Uh, in a so way. I'll take you a year before that I had just won the district ride, won the most money. And now I got invited by Tara Krizuli, who's like the gatekeeper for all the events in Europe. And he's like, we're doing this five stop, five country, five different free ride discipline tour through Europe next year we're taking 10 guys and you're one of the 10 guys and it's like bear claw and zinc and straight and McCall. And, you know, I, it was just, it was a, a sick group of, of riders and I was in there and it was like, great, we're all going to compete and go to from country to country five weeks in a row for this, uh, for this, for Nissan, who's paying for the entire event. Um, and I get to the first one in Newcastle, England and, was riding, you know, great and getting my run kind of finalized. And it was my last time doing the run before qualifying. And they had this like wooden step up onto a platform and then it turned and then a two by four that just goes, let's say 25, 30 feet long. So it's pretty freaking long. And, uh, and, and then there was hay, hay bales underneath it. And it was about an eight foot drop. So it was, it was high enough to feel pretty scary. Um, and, uh, and people were screwing up, but when they screwed up, they like hit their brakes, stopped cause they're out of balance and then hopped over the top tube and jumped all the way down and landed on the hay bales. Um, so this last one I had hopped up and I was riding across it and I was just kind of leaning over my bars to get down to the very end of it. And my back tire slipped off and I kind of cased the side of it and the side of the structure that broke a little bit too. And some of the boards came off and I came backwards off the side of it and I fell into a wall. So I, I kind of like fell and I, and I, and I'm, I hit the wall and then I hit the ground in a sit, sitted position. So I was like, boom, boom. So I was straight up and down. Uh, which gave me a burst fracture of my L1 vertebrae. And it's like smashing a donut on a table. The vertebrae like crumbled all the way around, but it didn't shear and ding my spinal cord. It, uh, it just, the whole thing compacted and, and cracked all the way around. So when it did that, it kind of pinched my spinal cord, but it didn't, it didn't shear it. 
Um, so I hit the ground thinking, well, thinking of how bad this injury was going to be as I was falling and going, oh, fuck, I'm like landing right on my ass. I'm going to break my pelvis and like all this stuff. And then I hit the ground like a sack of potatoes. My um, Everything from my waist down was completely shut off. I was holding my the weight off of my back with my hands. So now my hands are on the ground, just, just holding weight off of my spine. My back's on fire and my legs don't move at all. And as an athlete, you already know what just happened. And I was just yelling like it maybe in disbelief, like I can't feel my legs, like, like, like it's like somebody could help me or something like that. Like I fell in the water, help me out. Like it was, it was like that, but no one can do anything for you. Um, the paramedics came over, put me on a backboard and strapped me all down, got me in the ambulance, camel call jumped in the ambulance with me and my legs started to come back once I got to the hospital. So they were probably off for 15 minutes or 20 minutes maybe or something like that. Long enough that, you know, everybody around at the event and everything else all just watched their buddy get paralyzed. So that was a, ooh, that was a rough one for everybody. Uh, and then my legs came back once I got to the hospital, but I was strapped down. So I was just doing like circles with my ankles. Um, and, uh, then I was flat on a bed for 10 days and then I got the rods in my back, which, uh, which I brought out here cause I knew we were talking about it. So, so this is what they put in my back. Wow. So if you're listening right? and not watching. What's that? Two inches, those screws? Yeah, they're yeah. they're like as, as long as my pinky or whatever. Yeah, that's they're, and it's they're 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 big enough there. that they're big enough when you screw this into your spine you feel it. And uh and this was the cage. This was in the um bottom of your the, spine. Yeah. Yeah. The one above it and below it were uh -huh. fused, and then the one in the middle was right here. And um and they take bone off of your hip and pack it all around the busted up L1. And then they put those screws in and mount it all up. And then they sew you all back up. And, uh, and then you're off and running, I guess. But I was in England for like three weeks straight, getting that all taken care of. Um, and then until I flew back home, um, I, Nissan bought me a flight in business class on Virgin Atlantic. So I was like, I had my own like lay down bed. I could be like perfectly flat. <clears throat> um, I was really fragile though, but for 10 days I had an unstable spine where I laid flat on my back with no pillow staring at the ceiling for the whole time um, in a different country that has a different medical um, system. So in the US, when I broke my femur, I had my own hotel room and I was able to call down and get a milkshake uh, if I wanted to or whatever. And in England, you're in a room with a dozen other people and everybody has like cloth dividers and you get to hear when somebody's waking up in pain, when somebody's coughing, when somebody's moaning, when somebody's crapping, like all, it's just, and then, you know, 10 days later, I'm the one moaning and screaming after my surgery. And it's just, uh, 
It's, it's a, it was the biggest slap in the face that I've ever taken of, you know, just kind of, wow, this is, uh, this is all fun and games until, you know, you beat yourself up this bad. And for a while I was getting awesome, getting hurt, getting better, getting awesome, getting hurt, getting better. And it was like, I broke, uh, my sternum and ribs and my elbow and my foot and, um, and then my femur and then my back and I'm paralyzed. And I'm like, Oh my God, like I'm, I'm like killing myself here. Um, so it was such a sobering time for me that when I got home, um, I, my wife and I, we decided to have a kid. Like it was always something we've been talking about, but then when I got home, I was like, let's do it. Let's have a kid. Like, let's do this. And she got pregnant right away. And, um, and then, you know, we had a, we had a baby girl a year later. Like it was, it was just a big time for me in my life, uh, because I had been riding such a high with little consequence, like, you know, some busted bones and stuff like that. But when this came around, it was really a big one for me. And we ended up, um, changing, changing the whole game. So I went from, I went, I took 2008 off. I didn't have a video part for neural disorder nine and then neural disorder 10, I came back with a video part. And then after that, I mostly rode traditional mountain bikes, doing adventure travel or urban downhill or what some one-off stunt, like an open loop or something like that. But, uh, my slope style days were done after that, like competing and everything else, uh, wasn't going to any more events. And what happened was I sort of now I had really built my name in racing and in free ride had this injury. So now I've got a story and now I'm going into another phase of my career, which puts me on a more traditional mountain bike, which actually gives me a little bit more value with the companies that supported me. Cause now I'm actually riding a real mountain bike and not like some prototype race bike or a dirt jump bike that doesn't, you know, sell a ton, a ton of units, but still, uh, still a cool thing to have. I had six years of a pro model bike with, with Cannondale. So that was always awesome. But, um, but being able to ride a more traditional mountain bike gave me a little bit more value in the industry right then and there. And I was riding, I was going all over the world for Cannondale, promoting their bikes and promoting everything that they were doing. Um, and it was, it was like, I didn't miss a step. I just changed my trajectory again from being a pro racer and having all that support, like a, like a mechanic to leaving all of that and then picking up my sponsors a la carte and going to free ride to then like sort of taking like rolling it back in the free ride world and riding more of a traditional bike and not doing the tricks that I earlier became more known for. Like, so it was just another adjustment. Like mentally now looking back, are you kind of had to 
not do slope style, not do the things you kind of had passion for that took you away from racing is, yeah, you know, like, like, do you think you sort of just like we all do just jump to the next thing and commit to that and you don't quite always deal with some of the trauma emotionally of all that stuff? So the head game to all of that was when I broke my back, I, I lost my superpower. I was no longer better in my opinion than everyone. Like I would, I could be like, yeah, well, if you know, you put me on the right course on the right day, who knows? I, I could probably win. Like, um, I no longer felt like that. I no longer felt like I had a, like I was strong enough to take a hit. Like, I can roll with the punches. I'll break my femur. I'll break my ribs, whatever. And I'll heal up. I'll be better. I'll be, what is it? Six weeks, eight weeks? Like, you know, I'll be, I'll be fine in no time. And this was really like, I was, I was down and out for six months before I was like just walking around and, um, and trying to get back. And then it was about a year before I really could ride my bike again. But when I rode my bike again, it's uh, like bunny hopping onto a picnic table was like, I don't think this is happening. Like, and I used to nose bonk over a picnic table. Like, mm, like there goes my superpower right now. Like most mountain bikers can case, not most, only there's only a few mountain bikers that can case their way up onto a picking table. And now I'm casing my way up onto a picking table. Like I used to float over these things. So it was, it was a real, it was really frustrating because my body didn't perform as well as my, my brain knew how to do it all, but my body worked different. And now, now that I'm 45, you know, I'm fully comfortable in that spot. But at 30, I was like, I can still do that. I can still do that. And, and, and riding with those rods in my back, man, it was just, it was killing me. It was a lot of, it was a lot of pain. Um, and trying to figure out how to ride with that pain, trying to, uh, like pop my back or massage my back in a way that it would take relief off so that I could continue riding. Um, it was just really, a, it was, it was very different. Um, I've got nerve damage in one of my calves. So one of my, my left calf is the soleus muscles like shut off. I can do like two or three single leg calf raises and then the muscles cooked. And I'm telling you, I can do two or three. Like I, I haven't done four since before I broke my back. So it's just, it's just, it's a nerve thing. And that's why guys like Paul Bass or whatever else, those guys are such, so inspirational because nerves are like an extension cord. It's either plugged in or not. And if it's not plugged in, you can't, well, just use the saw a little bit. Like it just doesn't work. So um, he must've had, a little, whatever, a little bit was still plugged in. He worked the shit out of it and got himself back up and running and moving and, and now riding and jumping and whatever else Paul does. So 
and walking more importantly and functioning like a, you know, an upright human. So he is, uh, yeah, guys like that are just such an inspiration to me. But, but when you're in that spot, I mean, you're, it's your number one, everything is to try to get, get yourself back to a normal life again. Um, so I did get myself back to a normal life. Uh, it's just a lot of things changed and mentally, um, I probably became more of a bitter guy sooner because of the lack of superpower that I, I, uh, I continued with. Like, I just, I just wasn't ever the, I wasn't ever the same. I still did spectacular stuff. I still put in a good neural disorder, uh, segi for, for number 10, um, and shot some really incredible stuff and I've gone and done some incredible stuff, but didn't, didn't have that superpower. I lost it that day when I broke my back. Yeah, man. Thanks for sharing that. that I mean, it just, it's so it's inspirational as well as tough because I think the ego is part of it as well, right? We're all just think we're invincible and, and you were given quite a rude awakening. Some people have a slower downfall and the career starts ending and you start getting beat more and you maybe have time to go, okay, well, I'm not going to do these crazy things as, as much anymore. And yours was a harsh sort of unfair slap in the face, as you said. Yeah. So what it did though, is now it turned me more into a GoPro athlete. So GoPro had just given me a camera and I had a GoPro on my head when I crashed. It didn't, it wasn't running, but uh, it was a first generation one that had AAA batteries in it and it didn't have a wide angle lens. Um, so I was GoPro's first mountain bike athlete in 07. I met those guys at, uh, at, at uh, Sea Otter and they were in a 10 by 10 GoPro tent and uh, and then that com that company just took off from there. But what it also did was it had me lean into technology and harnessing like technology over tricks. Like I was like, all right, now how can I shoot this different? How can I bring the viewer along with me? How can I, when I do these video projects, I'll mount GoPros on my bike so that you can see the drivetrain or so that you can see the down tube logo. And then I'll give the footage to the producer or to the filmer or whoever's managing the content. And now they have all these shots that have like nice, clean locked off shots of like the frame, like where you can actually read Cannondale or the, or my gear or my gloves or, or me, my face, I can put the camera right here looking back at my face. So now the whole time you're riding, you can like, they were able to use that. So I was, I was learning the tricks of the trade and I was giving these companies that were putting together content real assets like that would work with my sponsors um, and keep the value with with me as I was chugging along. So I was able to direct the shots, the GoPro shots that I shot and feed those to, uh, to the different teams that were doing pieces with me. So I became one of the guys that were like a really easy guy to work with. This guy will, you know, not only get 
it done, but add more value to it with the stuff that he brings uh, to the table, like his expertise. So I did feel like I was figuring out the industry more. Um, it was just my riding was plateauing instead of like a limitless ceiling, you know. I mean, that's definitely going to happen at some stage. It just was forced to happen earlier to you. Now, you know, you're always going to age out of slope style, um, whether it's oh, an yeah. in injury or not, you know, and age out of competing. And then there's an ambassador thing. So I can, I, I relate on some things, you know, I'm also after racing it to add value and reinvent myself. And super interesting to hear what, what you're doing. But it seemed like you said there was still a silver lining, like you were forced to then get into the GoPro stuff more or the, you know, the adventure riding more um, because of an injury, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's just, you just keep looking at your strengths and how to apply them to your life. And so that you can be the most impactful person for yourself and add the most value to your sponsors and keep chugging forward. Um, the sponsorship game was always a fun one um, until it wasn't. And I, you know, Lenowski and I would joke all the time and we would talk numbers and he'd be like, yeah, I just lost two sponsors, but I just picked up two sponsors or I just picked up one, but they're way bigger or I lost two and picked up four. Like, who knows? Every year was a, a reshuffle of the people that were supporting you and you kind of got that deal done at Interbike and Interbike was a great time for me to get a deal done because Neural Disorder would always do a video premiere. So everybody just saw my video part and they're gassed up. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, you know, and I'm still on Red Bull and GoPro and, um, so I was just, I always felt pretty high value in the bike world for just such a long time. And then, you know, COVID comes around and it's like reshuffles the whole deck. Like the, um, the industry doesn't have bikes. You can't sell them. Um, you know, everybody bought everything already. So do you really need an ambassador or somebody showing you how awesome our suspension fork is when you, you, yeah, you, they owe a million forks to all these different brands to get them off and running. Like they don't need to sell a whatever, let's say a couple hundred oddball forks. Like they need to kind of streamline their, their, uh, their budget. And I, it just really changed for me. And plus I was 40. So it kind of changed for me too. Then like I was just, getting burnt out on the whole thing. Uh, especially when it's not, when you're not seeing the, the same support, um, as years passed and you're comparing your salary this year to your salary five years ago, and you're watching it just trickle down. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't even know how to tell kids how to get sponsored these days. People are like, how do I get into it? I'm like, uh, be the best uh, yeah like, i was gonna say uh, like the absolute best isn't that the wrong question yeah like how to get sponsored it comes up a lot 
I mean, it's technically the wrong question in the beginning. Yes, if you can show me a CV that's winning everything and and other people that are way worse have sponsored, yeah, we could look at your CV and look at your deck and I could help you with that. But is it, I mean, that's still the wrong question, how to get sponsored. They should be asking you how to get better or do you think I should do free ride or race or where do you think my skill set is? What can I improve on? Those would be better questions, wouldn't it? Yeah, I don't even know. I, I don't even know what like an Emil Johansson gets paid these days. Like, I don't know how that. I works. don't know either. Like, I'd love to know. You know what I mean? <laughs> what What did you make at the height of it then? And I mean, I guess there was. You see, yeah. freeriding so different to mount to racing because we had salaries no. plus bonuses plus they paid you expenses. You had a pro contract in racing, yes. so you you did both styles. Like I thought, freeriding was hard difficult to to make a living because they i mean you guys had some travel budgets i heard but and maybe if you were on oh, specialized yeah. you had a card that some uh, athletes misspent on and that got taken away ah. <laughs> um, <laughs> are we talking about jordy's classic yeah. misspending of his specialized yeah, but I heard, card i heard it was an honest mistake that the other cards were getting bounced first and that was like last resort to not get beaten up that's the butchered it version was. I've heard. Yes. So like it was an honest mistake and last resort to use the card. It wasn't like a naughty, let's use the corporate card. <laughs> so At I the gentleman's club in Vegas. Oh, yeah, there's some things that you probably don't want to do. But I mean, I don't know. What's the least, what's the, what's the consequence on both sides? You're like, I need to pay my tab and get the heck out of here or I'm going to get beat up by the bouncer. So I know, um, but yeah, it was cool. Uh, so, uh, Jordy, uh, um, bear claw and straight all had specialized credit cards. I never had a company credit card, like with my name on it and, and it didn't ever go to my account. I never had that. I got reimbursed. So, uh 98 i got a bike and a jersey and a helmet and then 99 soby signed on and i got and i and i got a letter in the mail saying come back and race for us and we'll pay you 9600 dollars this year and i was like woo 9600 bucks so um that was my first real paycheck and that was just um quarterly i'm sure at the time and that was just for one team so like i couldn't get another sponsor and make more money when i left and i don't re remember the most i made racing um i don't really remember what that was but it was not near what i was making in with freeride because then i left and got paid probably somewhere around 100 or 120 from Cannondale. Really? You had a, a six-figure frame deal? Yeah. Where that was at the height well, I also movies were a big if you were in the movie parts that's big for them because it was before the in, like kind of internet and social media, right? I also had a signature bike with those guys. And I was doing R&D with those guys cuz I live like a few hours away, you know. So I had six years of signature bikes with those guys. Um, and we had worked on a lot of different little projects. Um, 
but anyway, I was real tight with those guys there. Um, I had a $20,000 travel budget that I blew the heck. I blew that thing out of the water every year and they kept paying it. It never capped. Ever. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. No. And like, I, like I would go to California and go hang out with McCall and Aptos, uh, and ride the, um, ride the jumps post office jeez jeez yeah post office in aptos oh yeah. you see some smoke coming out of my ears for that one so we go <laughs> ride the jumps and everything else and i would do that every single month as as a you know hey, i got new bikes and new sponsors i got to get out there and i got to shoot the bike and i got to shoot the new sponsor gear and i got to stay sharp and so i would i was constantly using my travel budget um making money on the side and Oh, and, and then also all the other sponsors like Maxis has been one of my longest running sponsors. That's always been a couple thousand bucks. Um, but you get, let's say, a dozen sponsors to all throw a lump of money in the hat and it adds right up, especially when some of those sponsors are GoPro and Red Bull. Um, I've had I've worked with, you know, degree body spray, lava soap. Uh, You've had a soap sponsor? Yeah, Ford. <laughs> Ford. I got. I got a. I yeah, got a Ford's, truck for two years. Ford's normal and cool, but you had a soap sponsor. Well, why not? Breaking into the mountain bikers get stinky. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, all, just all these different um, sponsors, you know, coming in and out over the years. Uh, but yeah, I would. I I made over two hundred for a good grip of years, probably. Shoot, six to ten years or something like that, somewhere that's good, in there. Man. As as you, as I you made should, that's great money. Shit, yeah, that, that's decent, yeah. Man. and that's not just flying out of Europe and risking it for nothing. You know, that's good that it can pay off like that. I bet yeah, there's not really... that many free riders making that now because it's like it's so there's so much more competition and depth in uh, yeah. free riders. A few guys that do rampage, and then there's a meal and. And you got Seminex still and, and readers now, you know, he's back at it, but not competing. There's some big ass names, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, all those guys, uh, I know are, you know, making some good money. I don't know if it's the same these days. Um, uh, it's good to see guys like Seminook be able to kind of dig his heels up, do what he does best, and then also get support from, Subaru and you know other companies while he's doing his other passion which is racing or or filming you know so it all like he seems like the model for free ride these days because he can pick and choose what he wants to do and do what he does best and blow minds and all that but I think even Seminook said it not too long ago on a podcast or whatever he said something about like He's like, you can put the best seggy together and like, maybe nobody even sees it. He's like, you don't even know. Like you can put a good fun feeling segment together where you've got a, like Danny McCasco, where he's got like a baby in the, in the buggy behind his bike and he's doing jumps with the baby and stuff like that. And that thing gets a bazillion hits. And he's like, you know, 
Aaron over fences. He did do that barrel roll thing with the with the baby on there. But besides that, it was like he was doing a lot of stuff like, you know, cutesy stuff, like flying down steps and and shit like that. Um, so you just like what's the recipe now? Like Yeah, like what imagine, is the what do you imagine? What, what would you, know you what I do mean? if you had the, the talent and the age on your side now? I, you you need to you need to put something together like Imaginate, which is like everything shot like it's little tiny tiny toys, and then there's a storyline and it's like relatable um, to like the common yeah. person that doesn't ride almost. Like my mom could watch that stuff, or maybe has oh, watched yeah. one or two, right? Okay, yeah. yeah, she knows of mountain biking through me, but still, it would be like her friends would be like, "Oh, doesn't your son do mountain biking? Look what I watch!" And it would be Danny McCaskill riding on little toy weird things and then we know how gnarly some of the tricks that he does are yeah but dude back in the day it would be like hey let's bring the camera to the bar because everyone's going to be over there doing some wild stuff and we'll pick up a couple shots and i'll sprinkle that into one of the the montages but it was always like just bring the camera with us and if you're feeling like you want to try something wild i'll you know, I'll film it, you film me, whatever. Um, or you'd be riding, trying to get the meat of, of your section or your video, which is riding. But it was just like living as wild as you can, trying to get as much of it on film as you can so you can put together a wild video um, without any real repercussions. So... Killing Time opens up with a scene of me and another guy fighting in a store and knocking the shelves over and dumping sodas on the, the kid's head and, you know, uh, totally trashing the store and being total assholes. But uh, no one said boo. It's like such bad behavior and... Uh, but you put it in a DVD and everyone's like, this fucking DVD is awesome. So got, you guys are crazy. <laughs> they think you it's know? just like a movie. It's fake. Yeah. Like it's yeah, it's exactly. in a DVD. It is. But on social media, yeah. it's, you get canceled right. in a hurry. Right. Somebody can chime in and be like, dude, you're an asshole. You just, that's somebody's store and you just fucking smashed all the chips on the ground. Like what the fuck, <laughs> for, for, you know, like, I'm like, I don't know. We were, it was one night we were trying to get some crazy footage. So we went and got some crazy footage and then put it in the movie and then didn't even think twice about it. <laughs> oh man. It has, it has changed that. Eh? Like you said, how oh, yeah. would you even, tackle filming now you know like like an incredible riding part could not get picked up by the algorithms or by uh, if there's not enough ad, you know spend on it it doesn't get out there either by the sponsors as well but anybody can do it and put it out in the universe and maybe it'll catch traction but I, the only reason people were seeing me is because I was locked in with the free ride guys and, or, or, or the other guys making the movies and, um, you know, and, and, and there, there you go. Now everyone's got their own, uh, platform to show whatever they do. And, and, and now it's super oversaturated, but back in the day it was, you know, you'd buy 
a couple bike bike movies a year just to kind of see check the temperature and see what people are doing and and if you were fortunate enough to be on those rosters you were a god you know yeah definitely but if you were good enough someone would spot you and you'd be in the next new all disorder like yeah there was a bros club there for sure right but if you were good enough, you know, be so good they can't ignore you is probably what you could say to someone asking about being sponsored. If your goal yeah. is to be sponsored, fine, or pro. I mean, you just got to be so good, no one, we just can't ignore you, you know. And that's where racing is obviously easier. Like the clock does not lie. Um, oh, whereas no. some, you know, and I, and that, that, have, I mean, remember, um, What's his face? Hart. His last name was Hart at the Klein. Scott Hart. Yeah, Scott Hart, of course. Um, and uh, he was quoted to say, well, you you know, like, yeah, you can buddy up with a photographer as a racer and, and get some cool stuff. But, you you know, like when I won a race, he's like, you know, then at least the credibility's there. You know, it's not just because he's unique or doing hill clickers on the forecross track that he's getting coverage he can also you know like the clock doesn't lie but i do think you know video parts don't lie either you know no no especially if you put together a good one and people like are really moved it was fun so like lenowski and i would always bullshit about stuff and we'd be like all right so we're we're watching our video part and, and you know jeff's like all right i'm you know i've got 20 clips in my video part last year i've got 28 clips in my video part this year i I feel like I did better. I leveled up and this and that. And then he would be like, but what do you do if you're Cedric? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, Cedric is like, is he riding faster in his video part this year? I don't know. Is he? And he's just like looking at shit, like, you know, trying to, trying to compare things the same. But if you had a video part where you were the one that was like ripping trails and riding fast, that's always harder to, compared to than doing tricks like so for me i was heavily bmx influenced um but also i didn't have so i wanted to do flips like a flip to fakie and hand plants over the tree and stuff like that but it was all like trial and error stuff like i didn't have a, we didn't have a foam pit to practice a big hand plan on it was just over and over and over again until you get it um and for me i quickly would realize that the special moves that i did that were so much different were more coveted than the ones where i tried to keep up with the rest of the herd like if i flipped a really big jump in my video part nobody was like dude that jump you flipped was ridiculous like I never got that. It was always like, dude, you crashed into a guitar solo. Like, are you fucking kidding? That was awesome. And so it was always like the dumb or more unique. I could be the, those were my bangers. Uh, Robbie Borden would do two heinous jumps that no one else would ever want to do. And that was his section. And then in between that was him doing like, wall rides and cutties down a trail and and everything else and then he had a heinous jump in the beginning and one at the end and that's his video part and it's freaking ridiculous and no one else can do that either 
Um, mine was like, you know, I really wanted to put my own stamp on, well, like everybody on your seggy and make it something that was extra special. So, um, I would always try to think out of the box. So I was probably one of the first guys to do like a flip to fakey on like a dirt quarter, um, or definitely a hand plant. Um, and I did that hand plant over that tree in Australia and that really put, put me on the map with some real BMX guys at the time. Cause I remember these guys were talking about it and I was like, dude, that was me. And they're like, that was you who did them. Like that was me. Um, I did the neutral gear. Did you ever try messing around with a little blank gear on your cassette? Uh, my brother and I might have. I was really bad at riding fake even with a neutral. <laughs> but you also did the winch thing, like the wakeboard winch. Is yeah. it, it's called a winch, right? Yeah. But that was kind of outside the box. Winch. Yeah, high yeah. speed winch to get you into, instead of you know getting you into sort of uphill obstacles. And it was all, yeah, right. you were super unique, like versatile and super unique, yeah. Yeah. So I'd always try to come up with some some sort of prop or something else like that. And dude, that winch was wild. I still have it actually. Really? It's a two, yeah, it's a thirteen horsepower. That you got it or what? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And and that was in the day where I think I broke my femur and um, I rode them up something. I was watching like Fuel TV and they were doing all this like winch wake skate stuff. And I was like, I wonder if I could get towed like into shit, like uphill, like towed uphill into it. Like I'm picturing like a step up into a quarter and then a step back down, but the step down had like a grind box on it. So I built some pretty unique stuff and made that happen. And that winch was really pretty fun. Um, I don't see anybody else kind of doing anything like that these days. It's just, it's a weird kind of a thing to, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work to get something like that made and built and everything. But anyway, it was a blast to, uh, to, to fuck with. And, um, and then have that neutral gear, uh, and, and try to showcase that. I tried it at one point, um, getting that thing packaged and for sale. And I sold it through a company named SIC and, uh, they just didn't have distribution enough to move it or anything like that. And, but it is still something that people run today as a neutral gear. I don't like think there's enough people on. with the talent to use that thing. No offense. Like <laughs> it's quite a, well, the it's a niche style, thing, guys. but it's so difficult to yeah. do it properly. Isn't it? Well, for you, it's not. Yeah. Well, no, nah, it's, it, takes practice like anything, but you shift down into it and then you do your move and then you come back out of your move and you have to be coasting and then you shift back up. Out okay. Of hang, on, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. We, we, for the listener and even on YouTube, what he's saying when he does a move, you have to ride down the road and you have to bunny up 180. That in itself is like 0.0001% of the world on a bike can do that. That's what I mean. To get into the coasting thing, you've got to be able to bunny up 180. People are like, we've lost them already. I can barely bunny yeah. up 180 anymore. And then <laughs> land perfectly and then coast backwards. People are like, what are these guys talking about? Yeah. So it was stuff like that that gave me, I felt like a little bit more edge in that new world or arena or those videos um, 
because it was just, it was something that it was, it was like that fuckery that people see and they're like, is that a magic trick? Like how come that worked the way that it did? Um, and I always was attracted to skateboarders that would do the weirdest tricks, like kick your board. It bounces off the wall. It comes back. He hops on it and then drops in and you're like, what? That's how he starts his run or, you know, just like weird, um, almost magic trick stuff. Um, so I always wanted to like apply some of that to, to the video projects and you know, that's all where your creativity comes in, where I think the, the, the audience appreciates like seeing something like weird and new. It's gone a little bit away from that. I must say, I mean, unless I'm missing something, you know, Matt McDuff was into his street and all this weird, unique stuff. And you rode with him a bit at some of his compounds, but it's mm. gone very big here. Like soap style is as street as it could get some, there's not even obstacles on a slope style. That would be kind of street. No, right? big, it's really, mountain biking's jumps. really, dis, uh, you know, gone its own way. Right. Would you say? Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's still plenty of guys out there that do the weirdness. Um, but yeah, I, I think the guys that are higher up, or maybe I should just say the events that are higher up are really concentrating on just big dirt jumps. They're, they're just big. Like Crankworks used to have, I mean, they always had big jumps in it, but they also, they also had like normal, like they had like an eight foot drop in it one year and people were doing like, Regakin did like a fast plant three whip off of like the eight foot drop, like a head high drop. Um, I just think that the competition sport in general is a little redlined. Um, and whenever I would design the district ride course, I would try to bring things back down to more of like a digestible size so that you might see, um, some of these guys, their the moves that they do on their video parts, you might actually see that in a contest setting. And I always felt like with these contests, you're always you're always building it bigger, like big white or you know crankworks or you name it, the Bear Claw Invitational. It was just it just kept getting bigger and bigger and crazier and gnarlier and um. And you would lose the the smaller stuff that could turn into something. Here's the last thing I was going to say with this contest. I would watch two dudes like Daniel Dares and a, B and a BMX um, park contest would flare and trick every single thing. He'd be like pinballing off of everything, doing all the tricks. And then Morgan Wade would drop in and do like a huge pocket air gap and then come back and jump over the rafters and land like, you know, and wall ride the wall and come back into the quarter. And, you know, these two guys would ride so different on the same course. And I wanted, I really always wanted to see slope style have a little bit more of their options open mm. because I think, guys like when drew bizanson was trying to get into slope style um he's just as awesome as all those other guys on a mountain bike he's just not that he's not as good as doing big drops and big dirt jump tricks as greg watts is but if they're if you put 
that slope style, that same slope style, and you squeezed it a little bit together. So there was an option here or there, or he could wall ride the side of the building or pop up and install one of the rafters or something like that's what he's known for in a skate park is to is jumping out of the arena and then jumping back into the arena with slope style it's just one line it's just big dirt jumps and and i think you get a little bit more of the repetitive tricks and stuff like that um, because the options aren't all there yeah that makes sense it would be cool if you could leave it more open to interpretation and some options and then your unique riding styles could come out because like you say there's just some riders could be super creative and it's a super difficult trick but it's not on the biggest obstacle it doesn't mean you couldn't maybe score pretty similar but yeah they've just kind of done it one line and there's six to seven big hits now you know yeah i like that audi nines uh contest that they do in that pit that's pretty cool oh it yeah that like is a... that is pretty cool so you're still yeah. watching the comps like what, what's what do you like to do in your spare time i'm watching ufc fights man yeah i really like yeah i really like watching two dudes pound the crap out of each other <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. i don't know what it is yeah there's that and um I'm really working towards my next level of my career. So what COVID kind of slowed down my bike sponsorship game. And now this year, you know, this month is the last month to get paid by common and that's it for me. I don't have any more bike sponsors. Um, I've got too many friends in the industry that will help me and hook me up, but I'm no longer, an athlete whatsoever. Um, I'm going through a divorce in my life right now, which, you know, is what it is. Uh, I've been married for 18 years and just can't keep the camp together anymore. Uh, I just think after a while, um, so much happens in somebody's life and there's still so much life left that sometimes the two people need to part ways so that they can continue on whatever their journey is that, that they need to be on. Um, and staying married to one person and loyal to one person and, and all in with one person is extremely difficult, especially traveling and having the life that we have and going all over the place. And it's good to have somebody solid back at home, but you know, life is fluid and changes and I got to change with the times too. So, <clears throat> so right now I'm doing that. I'm doing work around that, uh, around here, around, um, where I live in central New Hampshire, um, site work, like in a machine, um, was doing septic tanks and leach fields and driveways and gutters, not gutters, but like drainage and, you know, just all digging in the dirt stuff that I've always done. Um, I like digging in the dirt. Uh, but, um, this is all a bit of a placeholder for something larger. And, um, I've got a couple different opportunities, but the biggest one is, um, five years ago, I was brought in to a team that's looking to develop a town in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains down in Tennessee. Um, and I would be 
the part of my role in the team would be uh, to create the bike park. Um, so it's a development on a scale that it would be, it would have its own power grid and power plant um, out, and it's a town based off of outdoor lifestyle um, and uh, whitewater rafting, sport fishing. Um, it's just one of those things that I'm able to use my expertise over the years and connections um, to get this going. Uh, it's just on such a large level that I'm in a holding pattern waiting for written permission from the state of Tennessee, which starts all of the TIFs and bonds and incentives that opens up all the other private funding that gets me paid and then that gets the whole ball rolling. So um, it, it, this 2024 should be my year. I'm really looking forward to it happening because creating your own bike park from scratch, from the ground up, especially with a group of guys that are developing a, a, a town around so a town it. from scratch. There's 800 people in this town right now. Okay. And so, yeah, basically. And they, and that's all, scratch. and that's how fascinating is it that they've earmarked a bike park as one of the facets, right? Like there's full-time yeah. trail builders and bike parks exist and. Oh yeah. Crankworks in the summer has more people through the Crankworks week has more people through Whistler than a winter weekend, you know, from tourists right. to bikers that help and, and, and all that and golf and stuff. But like how fascinating, you know, whereas maybe retiring 20 years ago for both you and I, there wasn't really an acceptance of the sport as a culture. Like in South Africa, it's one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing. Is, is mountain biking, cycling, the Cape oh, Epic, yeah. these events, you know, and every second person I went to high school was just getting a bike or getting into it. And, and I was always the guy that I was the weird BMX kid, they thought, because they didn't even, mountain yeah. biking really wasn't a sport. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, it feels like to me, um, I could have been uh, Hans Ray and just sponsored forever. But I, I, I don't even think that's possible anymore. I really don't. I don't know how to make that happen. But I thought for quite a while, like, eh, I'm kind of grandfathered in. I could probably just be in the bike industry on any level and kind of keep it going. But that is not easy, dude, at all to retain sponsorship anymore. So um, yeah, it's draining, right? Like you almost sometimes yeah. you feel like there's value and there was, um, but you maybe may feel like you're groveling and, and that's tough. So it sounds like there were signs that it was tough at times through COVID, but also you mentally and internally looked at it and decided, okay, well, what is, what is long, long term look like? And, and, and this opportunity you founded, it kind of came to you. Like, how does something like this happen? So it came to me through Brad J. Brad J is the announcer for yeah. Rampage. Yeah, um, I worked with yeah. Brad. Yeah, yeah. Well, alongside. Yeah. Not, yeah. So he's awesome. He's done every event, uh, surf, skate, bike, um, Olympics, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. And he's a real good dude. Um, he buddied up with this guy who's developing who's trying to do this whole development and i was the bike side of it so to see if 
I can get that rolling. Um, we're really, really close to funding once we get uh, the written permission from the state of Tennessee. The good part is that the state needs to spend these incentives and they also need this to happen to turn on tax revenue back to back to the state and everything else. And this money is up for grabs. And so it's anyway, it's all happening. We, we, we own a bunch of real estate in town and stuff like that. So it's, um, it's all super exciting. I'm just kind of waiting for that to hit. And in the meantime, doing some work around here, um, you know, I've got split custody of my kids. So, uh, I physically need to be here half the time. I can't just hop on the road and skedaddle like I used to. So, uh, but it's all good. I've, I feel like I've kind of gotten that fire out of me of, you know, riding and traveling and doing all that stuff. And I definitely now have a newer kind of lease on life. Like every day is, is my own and it's what I make it now. I don't have to okay it with, uh, through a, a partner anymore or anything like that. So plus I love where I live. This is my, you know, log home right here in New Hampshire. Um, I've got property and uh, a barn and friends. Highland's a stone's throw away. It's 10 minutes down the road. Um, so I just live in a great spot. And this is the town that I grew up in and that my dad moved us to when I was in fourth grade and built our house. So I'm just living back home and um, living comfortably right now, which is great. And, uh, and just moving through to my next, you know, business venture and, hoping that, uh, hoping that that kicks off. So I'm not, uh, an electrician or something like that in town. Or the, or the better guy at the, the, the bar, as you said, you got better earlier than, than, than some, but, um, do you think it's like a death, like stopping a career, like, like sport and me, it's racing. Like there's some of it, you got to say good, but there's like a mourning period, I think. Yeah, I think uh, it would be a lot harder if I didn't go through what I went through in 07 with my back. Okay. Um, because I've felt a decline for a while, at least just like in my riding. Um, so it's not like it just sort of fell apart for me. But I think it's like anything. Uh, I, I heard a good analogy. It's like being a model and you lose your looks, you know, and it's just father time robbing that shit from you but at the same time i'm 45 i'm in great shape um you know i could i still got it um so so that feels good um and also feels good that i've i, I went out and did it all too like um you know i put a lot out there um i i did a lot you could always do more um but i could always have miss that sponsor and miss the whole train or I could have sheared my spine instead of burst fractured it and not be walking like so man 19 years with Red Bull 17 years with Cannondale and 17 years with uh GoPro so you know I and and I, I think longer with Maxis I think I've been on Maxis for 21 years. Dude, I 
you clearly did something right, man. I think you need a huge pat on the back, and you've paved the way yeah. for for many a career, man. Inspired many people to to follow, you know, in your footsteps and kind of go against the grain of you know it was going big mountain and you went more street and more unique and more hotel when mountain biking wasn't really that you know no no it wasn't but i i i didn't figure out early on that to to stick with what you're what you're great at or exceptional at um i you know i tried to keep up when it came to big tricks on big jumps and then I was like, I don't need to do this anymore because what I do, I can't McCall can't do whatever. You know what I mean? Like I'd do something stupid and he'd be like, man, I wish I could make that happen. But he's, you know, one of the sickest riders to ever ride a bike and he can trick any shoddy, weird, scary step down. And every time I hit it, I'd be dead sailoring and he could do a pendulum off of it. Like it's just different different strokes for different folks i don't know you're just different people are good at different things yeah i think that's what what a way to wrap it up dude just stick uh, to really double down on what you're really good at and you followed your passion and like you say i think we're both lucky you know when we really calm it down in 20 years or whatever and we all those bitter guys at the bar we get to say we went out there and tried um so uh, I'm thankful to that as well, you know. Dude, how much fun was it? Like at the, you'd get done, it would be the Sunday of some big race and like Kavark and Rennie just did well and they're like murdering a bottle of Jack, just and then you know, everyone's running around town and like you're bumping into your buddies everywhere and you're like, well, there it is, Neefling and those guys or whatever, you know, and and then, I don't know, it was just, there was just, it was just such a fucking adventure. It was so much fun. Um, it was before social media took off and everybody, I don't know, was more accountable. This was like, you get wild and, and not everyone's filming it or whatever. I don't know what I'm even trying to say. It was just, you get away with more, I guess. It was just more innocent yeah, yeah, or whatever. You, no, you 100% could. You could be more yourself. I'm not condoning, condoning like partying, but I think I would be lying if it wasn't part of the relaxation or relief after an event of that pent-up adrenaline, pent-up emotion and, and sacrifice up to a big event. And then uh, it was like spring break all over, you know? Yeah. We well, and you're together. far from home and you're like, and everyone's celebrating and you're like, let's yeah. get out there. It's So, yeah, it's, um, it was a fucking great time. Um, what a ride, doing it huh? And Yeah, what a ride. And I, I would have more memories if I didn't smoke my head along the way too. So Likewise. <laughs> Yeah. Dude, I, I mean, I, I think, uh, dude, props for your career, props for all you went through and, and coming back from which, I don't know, some people might not have got back on a bike and that was scary what you oh. went through. Yeah, you physically were able to do it, but mentally, um, dude, no, thanks, thanks for all the memories. I think it's what a fitting time to do a podcast with this next transition of yours to sort of say, yeah. I'm not going to be sponsored anymore. And I'm going to go in and go in a different direction. 
Yeah, it's scary. It's a little sad, but the sponsorship world, um, it's just harder and harder to to hang on to. And it just seems, seems like every company is just like, eh, budget cuts, uh, we might be able to do. And you're just like, dude, God damn. Like, I remember when it was, you know, we want you and they want you. So like, let us know when, what you figure out. And I hope you guys come with us, you know, and Mm. just so many more options and, but whatever, maybe it'll come back around. It seems like, uh, I mean, the opportunities are still out there. You could podcast, which is cool and everything else. And you've been doing this for a while now. Yeah, a little bit. Well, COVID was yeah. the, definitely a sort of what spearheaded it. I thought about it for 10, 15 years before that. Um, yeah. and, and, and it is, yeah, it's been, it's been quite the journey, man, I must say. And yeah, content's an interesting game to play. Um, it's not always the most fulfilling, um, but I enjoy it. I enjoy it. And I think people get value out of it. And I, and I think that's where we're also missing is the story behind the rider, the story behind the edit. Um, Cause everyone's so fascinating, you know? Yeah. Well, and you got a great position cause now you know everybody and you got a good channel and you know, awesome list of contacts that probably keeps snowballing. Every time you do one, you're like, Hey, set me up with somebody who, who do you got? And keep it going. So it's good. I should actually leave, like there's some of these podcasts have like leave a question for the next person or whatever. I should be like, well, give me an idea for the next guest, you know? Yeah. Uh, have you had McDuff on? I have early on. Yeah, I loved it. Because what's he doing over at his place? He looks like he's what, building some oh, scary stuff. Oh, now, yeah, he's building a lot of scary stuff. Yeah. I saw Reynolds went out there. I'll probably see him for Darkfest in Feb. He'll come mm-hmm. out. So yeah, he's transitioned like it's Big Air McDuff or whatever his nick now his nickname is. He was <laughs> podcasting for a bit. I think it's on ice at the moment. Yeah. So he was podcasting yeah. and sort of telling that injury journey, which you'd be a good guest if he ever brings it on again. I don't know. Did you go on his show? I did, yeah. Yeah, I that's did. what I thought. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dude, he's a crazy dude. He's such a good dude. That he's, he's a such a good dude. So here, I'll, I'll leave you. I'll leave you with fuck. I'll leave. Yeah, dude. Oh my god. All right, how leave did me you with a nugget. And and how did we not? I still have not seen that footage. I haven't seen him go. Okay, dropping in. Whoa, smell splat. I still haven't seen that clip. Yeah, because it, I need to. I feel like right? I watched it for the. Well, I didn't want to watch it. I might have put my hands over my eyes. But I don't know who owns it or if it went on a paid for video or something. I need to ask him where that is. I don't know either. I haven't really seen it. But uh, um, so, yeah, I'm sure. Um, So I did a video series called Mountain Mods where I was building unique tricks and I'm building unique obstacles for unique tricks. So the one that I built here at my house was like an on off box that you could do half cap tricks on. So I. I had McDuff come over for it and he's like, I'll come and do your video, but you got to come and do my party master tour. And, uh, this summer. And I was like, all right, cool, let's do it. So party master tour is where he does a trip through like an area in, 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 um, Canada, um, with a band, with, with a couple different bands and they do like psychedelic shows and it's just like, it's pretty cool and pretty awesome. Um, but I, 
traveled around with him, the bands and, and, and a group of guys riding. Um, we went to his mom's house first and we did yoga in her garden and we ate vegetables and like a big scrambled egg vegetable thing in the morning and very zenful. And then we drove to Matt's dad's house. <laughs> and dude, Matt's dad lives in a cabin out in the woods on the side of this lake. Um, and he's a wild man. And we partied there for two days, two nights. We built a jump off of his dock. We took his boat out. We went on this big rope swing on an island. We did all of this stuff. And it was so much fun to see the two sides of Macduff. I was going to say, the, that makes so much sense. The spiritual, gentle, caring, connected to earth in your body. Yes. mom side and then the wild man who's just can't be can't be, can't uh, be tamed. contained yeah it can't yeah. be tamed yeah dude that's that's great i'm gonna ask him more about that when he's here chase yeah dude this has been unreal man and thanks for everything you've done in the industry and uh, i look forward to staying in touch and hearing more about your your these future plans man i'm holding thumbs it sounds like an exciting project Yes, buddy, me too. And uh, yeah, congrats to you too, dude. It's good to see you and rap with you. And it's, I'm looking at the map above your head. You're in Africa. I'm in yeah. the United States and we're just shooting the shit. And dude. this one it's here killer. is my uh, local bike park that I help with. I don't build as yes. much. Yeah, I help manage and run that a little bit. And that's like the, the map of the trails and my brother and our bike shops like at the bottom. So, um, yeah, yeah, full circle as well. And I'm sure we'll share many stories and probably around two when you're in your next venture and maybe I'm in my next venture. Yeah, let's do, absolutely. Let's do it. Yeah, dude. Well, that'd be a lot of fun. Hey there, mountain bikers and podcast enthusiasts. And I'm here to talk to you about something that's going to change your game both on and off the trail. It's the Manscaped Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra, the only trimmer your family jewels will ever need. We all want to shave time off our race runs, but how about shaving the parts that really matter? Picture this, you're shredding down the gnarliest trails, feeling the wind in your hair, and then it hits you. You need to tame the beast below the belt. That's where Manscaped comes in. With their cutting-edge technology and precision engineering, you can now groom with confidence, just like you conquer those downhill descents. But wait, there's more. Movie the Podcast is proudly brought to you by Manscaped, because we know what it takes to move the needle on and off the trails. The Lawnmower 5.0 is not just a trimmer. It's a performance masterpiece that guarantees smooth sailing through every twist and turn. And folks, this isn't just any trimmer. It's got skin-safe technology to prevent nicks and snags in those delicate areas. Seriously, I've been testing this bad boy and not one nick down there. It's waterproof, so you can take it from the trail to the shower without missing a beat. The constant motor RPM is like the turbo boost for your nether regions, ensuring you'll be flying down those trails in record time. But that's not all. If you head over to manscaped.com and use code MOVINGTHENEEDLE, you'll get an exclusive 20% off and free shipping on your order. That's right, 20% off. So whether you're moving the needle in life or moving the needle on the trail, do it with style, precision, and the Manscaped Lawn Mower 5.0. Your jewels will thank you. 
Yeah, peace out. You guys know what to do. If you enjoyed it, share it with a friend. And we are on YouTube. So make sure you go to Moving the Needle Podcast on YouTube. And you could have, if you're on there, thanks very much because you would have seen those gnarly screws that Aaron Chase had just spoken about. But maybe you need to go and see the screws. So head over to the YouTube channel and follow Chase along because I'm sure he's going to share some of the new adventures with you on his Instagram. Till the next one, peace. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. During my competitive days and now, health is a real priority for me. That's why for the last two years, I've been drinking AG1 every day. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day every day, and it makes me feel energized and focused to take on the day. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also simple. With AG1, I know I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support with vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from whole foods. I like to think of it as nutritional insurance. I know I'm covering my nutritional basis right from the start of the day. The thought of taking multiple supplements, mixing them and matching pills and powders, etc. sounds exhausting and such a mission. But just one daily scoop of AG1 covers my nutrient gaps and supports my mental and physical health without a lot of hassle. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1 and that's why I partnered with it. Plus, I started taking AG1 long before this partnership even came about. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 plus K2. Also, Five free AG1 travel packs, which are awesome. These are great. I take them on the road. With your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com forward slash moving the needle. That's drinkag1.com forward slash moving the needle to check it out. The links will be in the show notes as well.